Well, beloved listeners, I'm not sitting in my usual studio because of technical hiccups. I'm squeezed into a little monk cell and the air has the faint scent of anti-COVID disinfectant. Not the perfect setting to be discussing perfumes with their mysterious and magical evocative powers. It's a bit like, isn't it, nibbling at Proust's famous Madeline. Now, in ancient civilizations, perfumes were also used to communicate with the gods, which is why the intoxicating scents of myrrh, frankincense and sandalwood have wafted through the temples of different religions through the ages. But have you ever stopped to wonder where perfumes come from? What makes us crave the heavy scents of vanilla and patchouli? And what goes into the iconic fragrances like opium and Chanel Number no. 5? My next guest is Dominic Rock, and he's in the studio with me, wafting his own air of mystery. Dominic's explored the most remote parts of the planet over the past 30 years, travelling from his native France to Peru, Egypt, Somaliland, by way of places like El Salvador, Madagascar and Iran. He's been on what he calls a lifelong olfactory quest, seeking out rare and exotic ingredients which he supplies to the world's most uh, posh perfume houses. And he's written a book, which I'll hold up to the microphone so you can see it, a book about his travels called In Search of Perfumes, A Lifetime Journey to the Sources of Nature. And uh, it's wonderful to have you in the studio with me, Dominic. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Now, you describe yourself as a sorcerer, not in the sense of sorcery, but uh, sourcing. You also talk of yourself as a gatherer of essences, What does a gatherer of essences do? What it's about is uh, making sure that the natural part of a perfume uh, gets to the perfumers on time in terms of quantity, quality, diversity. So my job has been this over the years uh, because the palette of natural ingredients that are needed uh, to craft the, the, the well-known perfumes that you were alluding to is uh, very wide. It comes from 40 or 45 different countries uh, and made of the, 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 the most incredible diversity of uh, box, resins, seeds, flowers. So uh, it's, it's a sort of... Uh, ongoing and never-ending journey uh, to go there, uh, making sure that the products do not disappear. Some of them have been as old as 5,000 years. So to make sure that this incredible tapestry of nature into the final bottle does not break. Now, you don't collect these ingredients in the raw state. No, of course. Uh, We're talking here about essential oils, extracts, resinoids. There is a technical vocabulary of basically, what does it mean? It means forever. Men have been wondering about how can I capture these incredible scents that that are in nature? How can I capture uh, the smell of the cedar of Lebanon, the smell of of the rose of Shiraz? (laughs) And gradually, we've invented processes, uh, waters, uh, fats, perfume fats, and then finally essential oils, extracts, all kind of extracts. So it's been a long journey. And these are not synthesized, or in other words, there's not synthetic alternatives. 
So, uh, should maybe remind uh, our audience that a perfume is always a combination of synthetic uh, molecules for one part and natural ingredients. The trick here is that synthetic molecules are very important because they give a, a skeleton, a kind of, of structure uh, for, for the work of the perfumer. But of course, then the, the nature scents are completely required to give softness, richness, uh, subtlety uh, to the perfume. And in, in short, uh, high quality perfumes also translate in the fact that they contain a lot of natural ingredients. You sound like a... Uh an expert in wine, the sort of language you're using is what we often hear applied to a fine glass of wine. There are a lot of parallels. Uh, for instance, uh, you know, uh, one of, the, of, of a major ingredient in perfumery is vanilla. Uh, on top of vanilla going in cakes or, or yogurts, uh, vanilla is a key ingredient for the perfumer. So here, when you, you start uh, dealing with these ingredients, you will find a, a very common vocabulary about, about aging, about uh, woody notes, vanilla notes. Yeah. Tell me about the person known as the nose. So, the famous noses. So, these people are uh, perfumers, the best of them called master perfumers. Um, and it's, it's sometimes not very well known that it's not about pure talent because we're so undereducated in our sense of smell that anyone uh, wanting to go into this business has first to study three or five years to memorize hundreds of smells. Like a library, he has to build in his own brain starting from scratch. So these people will do that. And then once they have memorized this library of smells, the most talented will emerge as the ones capable to do the most uh, incredible creations from their own library. And these are the master perfumers. Let's begin our fragrant journey, as you do in the book, by travelling to Andalusia in the south of Spain. And you write very poetically, quote, The Andalusian hills were spangled with fat white flakes as if an unlikely storm had dusted the fields in snow. On that afternoon in spring, I was launched on an aromatic and emotional journey from which I have never truly returned. Magical white flakes, what were they? Uh, the cistus uh, labdanum that I'm uh, referring to uh, blooms in April uh, with very fragile poppy-like flowers. So the leaves are, are dark green and all of a sudden you have this burst, this explosion of, of flowers and they really evoked to me huge snowflakes that would have fallen on the, on, on the hills. Someone else has described them or they've often described as the tears of Christ. Yes, because uh, these flowers have uh, five petals and at the, at the source of, of the petal is a dark red spot and these dark red spots are the tears of Christ. Now, this becomes one of the key ingredients in many a perfume. 
Labdamnon is, is fundamental. It's one of the most ancient ingredients, actually. Uh, there's a, <laughs> the story is pretty incredible because uh, as all of, for the, 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 the ingredients mentioned in the Bible in ancient times, uh, the shepherds uh, around the Mediterranean used to take their sheep uh, through these labdanum fields and the gum is so sticky, so strong that they, they, they would end the day with their, their wool covered of this labdanum gum that they then would comb uh, in the evening evening around their fires to recover these bowls of labdanum gum, which were incredibly fragrant. And yet you point out that the flowers, while, you know, they resemble poppies and they're as delicate as tissue paper, they don't themselves have smell. No. This it's is, a paradox. It, it's completely a paradox. It's not the only one. It happens uh, uh, very often. Uh, like a plant will be very seductive with its flower, but the flower will not smell. It will be then the shrub or the leaf or the seed or the bark. That is so intriguing. So it was one of the very first aromatic materials to be used for scent, and it goes back or it appears it's referenced on Mesopotamian tablets. Yes, uh, a handful of ingredients like frankincense, uh, cedar, uh, cedar oil, as I mentioned, uh, labdanum, uh, benzoin, uh, and, and a few others, but not uh, cinnamon, uh, appear, uh, yes, uh, back in Mesopotamia and Egypt. The Egyptians were crazy about perfume and were very creative to the point of also using myrrh in their recipe to mummify uh, the, the pharaohs. If we trace the history of perfumes back along the uh, the silk roads and spice routes, you say it leads us back to eighth uh, century Persia. Yeah, the rose, uh, which is maybe the most emblematic uh, scent uh, that we have in in, in fine fragrance, uh, traces back because after studying a lot, uh, men discovered that the most fragrant rose originated in Shiraz in in the south of Iran. And the Persians then were very smart because they quickly found the way to perfume water and to do what we call rose water. And they really, their caravans conveyed and sold rose water throughout the, 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 the world of the time. And I believe the Crusaders played a role. The Crusader plays a role to the point they they discover this rose water and this smell in Damascus, which is uh, some kind of center of the world at, at the time, and they bring back roses, rose water, and everything attached to rose to Europe. Now, the recipe for rose water is ancient, but it's also very simple. Yeah, it's it's boiling basically uh, flowers into water, and then the uh, the steam that comes out, you 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 cool it and you condensate it, and uh, and the fascinating story around rose is that for centuries you we just kept it at that until uh, a Mughal emperor discovered that if you do that long enough and with a, a sufficient volume, you will see at the surface of your rose water a little golden, very thin layer of something appearing and this something is what is not soluble in water from the rose itself and this is the famous rose oil the essential oil of rose this is a particularly sweet smelling edition of our little wireless program and my guest sitting in the studio dominic rock i'm holding his book up to the camera again to the microphone in search of 
perfumes. Now, I understand that uh, rose water is ubiquitous throughout Islamic culture because it's seen as having purifying properties. Absolutely. There's an, an amazing uh, success of this smell in, in the Arabic uh, world. The uh, Arabic are crazy about rose and, and a few other ingredients, and they attach to it a sense of purity to the point of really throwing rose water, which is still done today uh, to purify your house, uh, purify your hands, uh, wash your hands with rose water as you, as you welcome the guest in your house. One of the, uh, the most intriguing facts we learn from your book is a bit of perfume mathematics. We learn that distillers need one million rose flowers to make one kilo of rose oil. Yeah, this image uh, I love, and, and this is what I really try to, 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 to tell in the book, is how this story ending in a small bottle of concentrate perfume starts in an immensity of fields, forests, deserts, where hundreds of thousands of people, humble people, unknown people, each picking a flower, taking pieces of bark or, or whatever, is constructing what is going to condense in an incredible way. Dominic, it has to be picked by hand. Is that the case? It is the case. It is the case. Every morning in the month of May and June in Bulgaria, in Turkey, in Morocco, thousands of pickers go out in the fields as soon as it is daylight. And until noon, they will handpick flowers in bags. And they stop at noon because at noon the sun becomes too hot and the sun is <laughs> replacing the distillation steel and is evaporating the perfume in the air. And in Bulgaria and elsewhere, the Roma play a very important part. Yes, the Roma are uh, very active in, in the Labdanum gum in, in, in southern Spain, and they are very active also in Bulgaria. So it means at the two ends of Europe, they play a key role in the birth of perfumes. And of course, there's only a, a three-week season. Yes. And sometimes the weather is inclement, so the time for picking, it's, it's a very narrow moment. It's a narrow moment, which means that you will have good crops and you will have bad crops and you will have to deal with that. Of course, when it rains, uh, it doesn't prevent from picking. It just means that you will have, along with the flowers, you will bring water in your distillation steels and the yield will be lower. But no choice. You have, they are so precious, these roses when they bloom, that you have to capture them. You describe young Aroma boys taking what's been picked to the mouth of large copper pots. Yes, this is the tradition. This is the ancient story of distilling rose. In Bulgaria, it's very moving because Bulgaria was glorious with rose oil. It was the symbol of the country. And, and the communist era almost killed this tradition. And uh, I myself witnessed the revival of, of the rose in Bulgaria in the 90s. And uh, with others, we bought a, a distillery that was completely in ruins. We tried to uh, 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 make it new again and make it work with planted roses and I must say that the, the, the witnessing of the pride of Bulgarian people finding back the ancient glory of their rose was very moving.
Dominique, your book is about perfume, but sometimes it verges on the political. There are some places in the world, you write, where you'd have to be blind or culpably indifferent to do business without being concerned about the deprivation suffered by local farmers. Tell me about your trip to Madagascar. Madagascar is both uh, magical, majestic beauty and absolute tragedy. This is, this is a country that has no state for, for decades and the, the, the farmers in Madagascar live exactly as they lived 100 years ago. It's just, it's, it's beyond comprehension. And uh, I've shared the, uh, for a long time the, the, the fate of these people and what the vanilla uh, richness can bring to them and, and how they suffer when there's a vanilla crisis. And, uh, and, and and yes, this is where some of the characters in my book, like for vanilla, uh, the woman that I describe of the, of the Queen of Vanilla was a very, uh, as a young child, she was very poor. She started going into vanilla and as she was successful and grew her business, she never forgot uh, the farmers and is doing a lot to try to help them. But the Madagascans who produce more than 80% of the world's vanilla are treated very brutally. Yeah, they're, they're, left, uh, they're left alone. Uh, there's no water in the villages. There's, of course, no health. There's barely uh, schools. They're, they're completely abandoned. They're abandoned. And it's uh, very hard, really, to, to, to witness this situation. And one wonders, you know, when is it going to change? Do you ever feel uncomfortable about the disconnect between the poverty-stricken workers on the ground and the ingredients they're harvesting, which end up, of course, in the most luxurious of luxury products. I know that you do. Yes. Yes, well, maybe feeling uh, uncomfortable is not enough. Uh, what I'm trying to do and I'm trying to explain in the book is that fundamentally I remain optimistic. I think for a long time uh, the perfumers, the perfume industry wanted to hide everything that happened before the bottle because they wanted to keep their secrets, their sources, everything. Now this is all changed. Consumer of today wants transparency. He wants to be sure that no harm is done to the children in Madagascar. And he wants to be sure that the ingredients that are in the bottle that he's going to pay quite a, a large sum of money for is ethical. And this is great. This is very recent, but it's an ongoing journey that's not going to stop. We talked about the Crusaders before. You've become a Crusader yourself because when you talk to the noses, you try to make them confront the realities. Absolutely. And I think uh, they have little time, but every time I was able to take a master perfumer with me on a trip, be it to Egypt, to India, to Salvador, it changed their perspective on the ingredient. And that, that was fabulous because not only they were conscious of what is taking place at the origin, but it also influences their work because they don't, you don't smell the same a Peru balsam on the trunk of a tree in the jungle than you do on a piece of paper in your lab. It's completely different. Take me now to, uh, well, where the inspiration from the book began. You are standing next to a frankincense tree in the mountains of Somaliland. So this is the my final uh, 
ultimate experience, if I may say so. Yes, I, it's very hard to go to Somaliland. It's complicated countries. You have to find the right partner on the ground. Uh, you get there, you have to have armed uh, guards that uh, go, go, go with you to the mountains. Finally, I succeeded in doing it. It was it was amazing. The frankincense trees are not very easy. They hide very high in the mountains. Uh, they hide in rocks, in cliffs. So I finally got there with uh, with the, the local tappers, the people who really uh, collect the frankincense. And he was demonstrating in front of me, just scratching with his traditional tool, the velvety bark of, of the frankincense trees. As they've been doing for 3,000 years. They've been doing for 5,000 years. And I realized that nothing has changed there. The guy was the same. The place was the same. The tree were the same. And the tool he was using was the same and the technique. So you cannot not be moved by this. It was a, a, a really, it, it brought me to tears uh, to realize that the kind of miracle it takes that frankincense still exists under these conditions and, uh, and immediately makes you wonder what will it take so that it continues. You know, your crusade reminds me of the crusade regarding blood diamonds. Yeah, there's, uh, there's probably there's, let, let's be honest, there's less violence. But, uh, you know, in Madagascar, the fate of, of the people uh, digging for sapphire is not very different uh, than the fate of the vanilla people. What do the growers you work with think about the end use of their materials? Do they realize what happens? They're rural people. They're humble people. Some have absolutely no clue of what their ingredients is going to become. Some know, and I think they, they feel maybe privileged that uh, a, a powerful, rich industry still takes interest in their, uh, in their own products. So we have to keep them having confidence in that and do everything that is possible so that their crops are always valued. You make the point that the gap between the cost of uh, patchouli leaves and a bottle of Angel is so huge that it's difficult for the people at the source to, to understand what's happening from a simple bush to that crystal bottle. Patchouli is a very good example. You know, this, this patchouli bushes, they, they look like, like nothing. You, you, you wouldn't think for a second they have any value, especially the fact that when they're fresh, they don't smell. They start smelling when, when you start fermenting them a little bit, this whole Chinese tradition of treating patchouli. And then you end up, yeah, well, as you say, with perfumes so well known as angel. And patchouli there plays a key role. If there weren't patchouli, there would be no angel. It's interesting, isn't it? I'm of an age to remember when patchouli oil took the world by storm during the hippie days. Yeah, and that came directly from a, an, an English uh, tradition because uh, at, at the start, the patchouli leaves were used by the Indians to perfume their shawls. And uh, the English noticed that uh, in the early uh, tw 20th century and they said, well, you know, let's have the leaves ourselves and we will perfume uh, uh, ourselves. So the English started importing the leaves and once they had imported the leaves of course it led them to distillate them and create the oil talking about being led you dedicate your book to your dad who you say showed you the path leading to the trees tell us a little about this path well uh 
my father was 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 a, a tree lover after having been a, a, a lumberjack, a logger himself. He spent two years of his life uh, in California. He, he was logging, in, including redwoods, and he was very, very marked by this experience when he, he realized later on, you know, what what had been done to the redwood forest. So I think this this thing uh, uh, around trees and and for me around perfume trees is very strong. I think trees probably symbolize all the good and all the bad that we can do to nature to the highest point. Is Australia involved in the trade? Very much so. There is a, a chapter in my book dedicated to the incredible story of Australian rescuing the Indian sandalwood, which had almost completely disappeared from India because the forest of sandalwood in India was destroyed. And because there is uh, an endemic uh, sandalwood in Australia, Sandalum spicatum, suddenly uh, some uh, Australians realized that there was a possibility in the northwest of the country to plant Indian sandalwood. They did, and it's amazingly successful in Kununura. We've only had time to hint at what's in your book, really, and it's a marvellous read. So, thanks for your time, thanks for your book, and thanks for coming in, Dominic. Dominic Rock, head of the Natural Ingredient Procurement at Fermanich, and author of the wonderful book, In Search of Perfumes, A Lifetime Journey to the Sources of Nature's Sense and it's published by Welbeck. Thanks, Tom. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. A pleasure, really. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.